You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Welcome. My name is Lynn Sartnes-Rottem, and I'm the Artistic Director here at the House of Literature. And I have the immense honor of welcoming you all to this event with Max Porter. It can be difficult to summarize Porter's writing in few words. His books is filled with so many layers and perspectives, told with both intelligence, humor and vulnerability. And we at the House of Literature have been huge admirers of Porter since his astonishing debut novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, was published in 2015. Since then, he has written critically acclaimed and powerful novels, Lanny and the Death of Francis Bacon, as well as the screenplay to the short film All of This Unreal Time. Now his fourth novel, Shy, is out, beautifully translated into Norwegian by Björn Alex Hermann. Like Porter's first two novels, Shy focuses on the questions of childhood and maternity and the complex layers between cruelty and compassion, between boyish anarchy and darkness. The three books, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, Lanny and Shy, may be thought of as a trilogy, a loving lyrically study of troubled youth, grief, and boyhood. Shy is both a character study of a depressed teen and a portrait of a generation. It shows the protagonist Shy caught between intense sensitivity and helpless fragility. Porter's treatment of toxic masculinity and male violence is full of compassion and understanding. As is the depictive of the emotional laborers in Shai, whose work often goes unappreciated in society. Max Porter is hailed for his originality and compassion in his writing. Writers such as George Saunders, PJ Harvey and Mariana Enriquez have praised his novels, and no doubt due to his transgressive linguistic style. In Shai, the sounds, the smells, and the lyrics of the 90s are waved into Shai's dramatic monologue, creating a touching tribute to the 90s outsider culture, and at the same time creating a work that pushes the boundaries of the novel itself. Porter is also a former editor at Granta and Portobello Books, and tonight he will meet fellow author and editor Mattis Eibe on stage. Please give them both a warm welcome. Hello. Hey. Welcome, Max Porter. Uh, I have been looking forward to this conversation and for many reasons. Max Porter is perhaps one of the most inventive writers I know in contemporary fiction of today. And in such a way that a Max Porter novel has become some sort of an idiom. After just four books, that's quite an achievement. And that means that the readers and reviewers have come to expect something special from him. One of these expectations, in my view, is the relationship between literary form and subject matter. The what and the how of the story, 
that Max Porter again and again challenges the reader to think through how the how is related to the what. Another expectation is the combination of realism and almost mythic approach to his themes and characters. In grief is that thing with weathers we met a crow with a voice of its own and characters that acknowledged the crow's existence and presence. And in Lanny, his second novel, we met a green little man called Dead Papa Toothworth, a strange out of this world being, a harborer of secrets and history and nature in a sense. But perhaps the most significant expectation opening a new Pax Max Porter novel is that we don't really know what we'll get. The reader is asked to be open, to take part, to allow for confusion and richness and density, to be in the most literary sense of the word moved. Oh, thank you. That's so yes. nice. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I, I, I love that. I wanted to I wanted <laughs> to describe what I'm feeling uh, yeah. when reading your books, but um, I'm not at least shy. But let's start off with uh, a, a simple and introducing question: Who is shy? Shy is. Um, a representation of 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 boyhood gone adrift of 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 boyhood curdled into into a, a place of great unhappiness he is he is depression uh, he is um a historical artifact which is important i didn't write it now i set it in 1995 because i wanted this distance mm -hmm. he he is a representation of of failure various different forms but also uh he is the beneficiary of extraordinary forms of calibrated care as you as, as the introduction said he is the recipient of very progressive love and educational care and therapy he is uh a suicidal boy heading into the night with a backpack of rocks so mm. he's a sort of proto mystic he has no vocabulary for the mysticism that he experiences and feels but he he is in the weather system of various different things one of which is his desire to die so mm. he's he's virginia wolf on the way to the river mm. robbed of virginia's ability to be eloquent about how she <laughs> feels he is all noise all rage all pain and his despair is linked to his joy, his love of this music, drum mm. and bass music. Um, he's na he's nameless. I don't do much exposition. I don't tell you what schools he's been expelled from or why or his relationship with it. It's all for you to do. Yeah. So he's a sort of uh, he's a blank. I had a dream a while ago, and I don't tend to use my dreams to write. Uh, but various things had stacked up, and I'd written a version of this book where he was a 14th-century medieval manuscript illuminator. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but the same boy, very unhappy, but railing against God in that instance, um, and the and the the commissioning models of 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 uh, illuminated manuscripts. But he was the same person; he was still as unhappy. But I had a dream uh, that there was this boy in the woods who was see-through and the membrane i'm very interested in membranes literary membranes and actual membranes the membrane uh, uh, like a cellular membrane as the life spark where the mysterious animating force is that makes something alive as opposed to dead and i had this dream of this boy in the woods who was see-through and into him was pouring the politics of the time he was being bombarded by the ideology of conservative britain but he was also 
the animals around him mm. and the speed of 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 phosphorescence or osmosis. He was nature at the same time, and I wanted. To, I wondered what it would be like if someone didn't know that they were that. Mm. If we or, or if we were gifted with a sudden real uh, a sudden understanding of of non-human time as it acts upon us. Mm. So simultaneously, the smallness of human life, but also the grandeur of it. Um, so I went from that moment, and this book I wrote fast. It came out in a torrent. How fast? Eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I really wrote this book in a. In a in I'm a, curious. In, How fast do you? I mean, a couple book? of weeks. A couple of weeks. And then I edited it very, very slowly. Mm. I wrote twenty thousand words, which is what you have now, more or less. And then I wrote twenty more, which was the mother. Mm. And then I wrote twenty more, which was the teacher. Mm each in different timescales, and I had a triptych, and as you'll know, I love the triptych as a mm. form, and then I tried to shuffle the triptychs. So I thought it was very interesting if the reader was plonked on very unsteady ground, where am I? Now I appear to be in the 2000s, now I appear to be in the 70s, now I appear to have not had a child, now I am that child, I've played with this. And I thought, what I'm doing here is trying to make this, I'm, I'm, I'm padding this book out to make it big, because my agent had said, can we have a big book? <laughs> um, Please. <laughs> but, and then I realised that the bigness wasn't, of course, in the extent, I should have known that, as mm. the author of Grief is Sing with Feathers, the bigness of a book is not in its word count, it's in the gesture. So I realised the gesture was that boy, mm. alone in the night. And so I went b back to the original 20,000 words, and then I listened to the extraordinary archive of 90s drum and bass and jungle that you can find on YouTube, which you must, <laughs> and, and edited it again at that tempo, mm. at that BPM. So the whole book judders and bangs along at the sound of the music in his head. So you listen to the arm and break. The arm and break is really important in this book. And we talked about it upstairs. It's, I think it goes like something like this. Isn't that the arm and break? No, no, no. It's more like... <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it is. But it's yeah. So it's, it, it was a drum. It was a drum break from a Motown record yeah. um, that, when sped up, became the, f the the formation, the building block of of drum and bass. Um, but tell them the poignant story because it's good, Mattis. But you know the 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 stolen story, the the, yeah. the stealing of it. Yeah. Uh, well, um, this was this was um, a it's break. a good story of it's capitalism. It's a good story of capitalism. A, a, a sad ways. story of capitalism yeah. because this was a a Motown record and these guys were. Just giving it away when the sampling sampling um, revolution came to modern music, they, uh, these uh, guys would just give it away. Just use it; it's free. Culture is free. And then some clever guy put it on a licensed CD, and then everybody else had to pay for it. So the guys who made the break, they didn't get any money. But the guys who were clever enough to put it on a licensed CD. He earned all, got all the money. So it's a, it's a sad, sad story. I thought about an uh, I thought about an epigraph that was let's, the famous quote, which is often sampled of "Let's give the drummer some." Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> but drummers drum. You know, this is the thing. You you aren't you aren't you aren't drumming to 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 be rich. And um, one of the things that I find extraordinary about the history of culture is that the the invisibility of the of the interpollination between different forms, and mm. I find that terrifying and exciting. Yeah. Um, so the idea that this teenage boy in 1995 is feeling, he describes it as this uh, divine intervention of God, which is which is made by drum machines and samples and drummers, but is in fact, uh, is in fact, hallelujah, he says, rain the drums down on me, this is God, God who is a bouncy bastard, who wants us all to be happy in the dance, and one of his techniques for that would be 
spring. One of his techniques for that would be love. One of his techniques for that would be <laughs> drum breaks. Mm. Mm. Um, that is how Shai accesses an elevated ecstatic feeling. And I ve feel very strongly that that should not be divorced from, should be organically connected to his, his rage. But and that music is still extraordinary. Those of you, the, all junglists in the place, will know <laughs> that, that that is still, it still sounds like the future. That music, it, 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 had a, it, had a, it benefited from sudden advances in music, digital music technology that meant that it sounded like a new sound. And it still does, I think. It's still a wonderful sound. But uh, to come back to Shai and his despair, because the music that you so, you describe with such hope and such light now, and which is his hope and light in a mm. way, uh, it's not enough. When we meet him, he's this troubled kid, as you said, with... A rucksack full of stones is about to commit suicide. That's we get that really early on. Mm. So I know I'm asking this. I'm I'm not sure you want to answer it, but I'm asking this deliberately. Why? Why is he there? What's eating shy? Mm. Because the question of yeah, why... I don't, I, don't, I don't want to answer that. <laughs> no. I just don't. You're right. <laughs> but well, what's eating shies? If we were to begin to sort of piece, piece it together, right? Because I have been... I have known shies and lost shies and worked with shies and I work with young people at the moment. One of the things that's happened, I think, with shy, which is... Uh, it's very... One of the reasons I didn't write this now and sort of essay upon the condition of teenage unhappiness from the safety of a 42-year-old man raising sons is because... Uh, the framework now is neuro, mm. you know, is neurological yeah. Yeah. Or, or even diagnostic. Whereas maybe even 10, 15 years ago, it might have been psychotherapeutic or, or before that, probably Freudian. Mm. And so we, every generation comes with its equipment, often very blunt, and tries to label children or medicate children or diagnose children or send children to the army or send them to boarding school or, or lock them up or whatever. I mean, We'll get on to, I hope, the Conservative government in the UK at the moment, but one of the things that the, the Conservative government at the moment will be like, out of sight, out of mind, ban them, ban them, bin them, lock them up, call them society's failure, society's mm. waste product. And so what, that, that's what's eating shy, is he feels like a waste product. He is learning about things such as British colonialism or the environment, and he's feeling like apocalyptic. He's mm. feeling like we're out of time. Uh, on top of that, guilt the sort of sickening, all-encompassing guilt of the, of the privileged white male uh, recipient of, of all the blessings that have been showered upon him. But also, if I were, I think, to think about um, a neurological explanation, you know, what they've now, what experts in the brain have now worked out is that when you're a teenage boy, the wiring of your brain is, is, is the rewiring of your brain during those years, the great floods of testosterone and stuff, means you're literally missing yeah. the empathetic wiring whereby you know you've got to be at granny's dinner on mm. sunday mm. yeah and, mm. and the, the kid goes yeah <laughs> you've got to be it's really important it's granny's 80th yeah and then he's not at the dinner mm. and that isn't an act of cruelty that the adults around him perceive it to be it's that he just hasn't understood that importance and has forgotten it because he's so stoned whatever so he i wanted he that's why so he's, he's a, so he's a person in the making he's, he's in a, he's in a fog between yeah the child and the adult he's in that lost place mm. he he is also um i mean I, i i members of my family have been manic depressives depression is post or pre-linguistic isn't it it's very difficult to speak of it and people have tried you know various different 
modes have become fashionable to think of the black dog or, or depression as a, a drench or, or depression is something that can be medicated away. For Shy, it is simply a place where he is absolutely alone and all the hangers upon which he might hang or linguistic hangers upon which he might hang his, his feelings in order to translate for others how he feels are, are dead, gone, they're dead ends. Mm. So he feels abject existential aloneness. Mm. And he is without, I just read the new Jan Foster today, he is without the vocabulary to say it's a shining white light in the wood. Mm. He feels it's a, it's a dead, it's a cul-de-sac, it's a dead end. And I think he also, it's, it's, it's important to think some of the people I spoke to who felt suicidal at that time, there was an excitement in the act, the taboo of taking one's own life. I think because of the kind of the legacy or the, the sort of residue of Christian thinking on it, that it is a crime, that it is a waste, holds some allure for someone like Shai. Mm. It's like, fine, I'm going to waste it. So it's, it's, it's this moment, it's Seattle grunge, it's, it's the first sort of, it's, it's, it, one of his friends in the house is a metal head, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, self, it's self-harm as a cultural phenomenon mm. and waste as an indulgence and as an excitement uh, and almost as an erotic charge that everybody fixates on, on preserving and maintaining and progressing and growth and you, one day you'll get a job and you'll go to university and mm. so the, what that does is then fetishize the resistance to say, actually, I'm going to blow it all up. Mm. And, and some, someone says that in 2005, Shai, you will look back on this and mm. see uh, you just turned, mm. just turned the page, you were just mm. there, mm. almost there. Which is such an insightful thing to say when you've done it yeah. and such a useless load of old shit when you're <laughs> in it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> what you want to say to unhappy people, I mean, I, I, some of the teenagers I work with, I, sort of, I sound like one of the, the carers in the book. I say, you know, you will meet other people you will travel to other places. Your entire way of understanding this world or your sense of belonging in it will change just on a, on a, you know, from Monday to Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Dad. You know, like, it, 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 it's futile. And that's why I wrote the book as I did, this collage of different voices, because I want you to be simultaneously... So there's this bit where you are simultaneously... There's these chunks of text across the page like this yeah. and I did it so it actually is in the margins of the book and it's you know do you want to break this family apart is that what you want would you choose to do this some people don't have the luxury of a nice mum to speak to wow here we go again don't you dare walk away come back here you know and, and, I, and that is simultaneously the mum's absolute failure to find any language to reach mm. him and it's what he hears just this wodge mm. this, this, this thick leaden clump of parental anxiety that means nothing to him But so it's about the failure of language in that regard. Yeah, but it's a lot of the teachers are really compassionate. A lot of the people mm. around him are really compassionate, and and I I sense that you have. And his mother is caring. Mm -hmm. uh, he she loves him, and his stepfather maybe doesn't. He he loves him, but he's not. Maybe he's not the most uh, uh, thoughtful mm. person. But mm. he he seems to have. Uh, what we would call a network mm. of people mm. around him, mm. Mm. Uh, so he could uh, thrive and mm. and grow and. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why? But that but, uh, frustration is so central to the whole thing of raising an unhappy person, or indeed to addiction of any kind, or depression. Because she says to him, "We live in a nice town. Mm. You're a nice boy. I'm a nice mum. Everything's great. You've had all these blessings. Why do you want to take these drugs that that, that are for medicating pain? What 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 pain are you in?" Mm. He doesn't. He can't say what pain he's in. Actually, I watched a brilliant movie. Oh my! I should say this. We're in Oslo. Yes. Oslo, August thirty yeah. first. Mm. I thought that was 
a masterpiece. Mm. And I wrote, I, I watched it recently. I watched it after having written this book. But the fact that it starts with him in the lake with the stone and, and gets you no closer to how the pain he's in, all it does is, is watch. All it does is stand with him during mm. that pain. And the futility of the, the, the kind of narrowness of his escape or not. It doesn't matter whether he dies or not, right? Because the point is that he has taken the risks whereby he might have escaped and, and hasn't. Mm. And I find that very interesting on a spiritual level as well as a practical one. And I think uh, uh, that movie also, <laughs> in a sense, uh, says something also a bit taboo that it respects the choice of the suicidal person. Yeah. And which is, and that was music to yeah, my heart because yeah. right? mm. I very much respect Shai's feelings, mm. and I think also every love story is a ghost story, and I really feel that one of the meanings of this book is that Shai might. This is three hours in the life of somebody who doesn't take their own life for whatever series of mystical, <laughs> dead badger related mm. events, but it, tomorrow he might, and the compassion that he is drenched in at the end is not conditional, mm. and much of the care much of the generosity of the spirit that we are afforded to people in, in trouble is conditional mm. based on our very narrow moral or psychological or, or social trench. It's very, very much prescribed that you, we forgive you and love you so long as you end up behaving like this. And so he is, uh, I, I love the wording in an introduction about the counterculture, he is, um, he is the forgiveness built into the, into the, uh, the love of the other. Mm. Um, And that, I, w I suppose, would be the, 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 the one of the through lines through the three books as a trilogy would be one's capabilities to adapt your compassion to suit the other rather than making the other fit your pre-existing framework of care. Um, But is it, um, I mean, to get to the portrait of Shai, you, um, we go through a lot of different kinds of languages. We go through a therapeutic language. We go through the banter from from, from the boys who stays with him at that, at that school. Uh, we go through the we hear the mom's questions, uh, the parents' questions, their judgments, their worry. Uh, we hear uh, there's a documentary film uh, a bit in the periphery uh, that's asking the question: Or are these helpful? Pe are we helping these people? Or are we just sending them off on? taxpayers' money, to some mm. retreat. There's every new language is introduced and they are maybe... It is as if you're saying they're into something, but they're not getting there. Mm. Or uh, mm. all these uh, uh, languages are saying something true, but mm. they also say something false. Mm. Uh, as if it's a back and forth of getting too shy. Is it that, yeah. uh, how you thought about it when you when you put all these kinds of languages inside inside the book? I think that I was preoccupied at that time with the edgelessness of consciousness and the edgelessness of the self, um, and that we are how other people perceive us to be, mm. and that there is a sort of enormous uh, confidence trick or, or or sleight of hand that occurs where we somehow become ourselves. You know, it, from a linguistic point, you know, from a symbolic point of view, and also from a practical one, we there is this extraordinary lucky trip that can occur when somebody is okay, and it's the jeopardy is, is extraordinary, isn't it? Because when you're not okay, it seems like that 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 cliff is tremendously steep. How can you ever get back to being okay? So you are left with other people's ideas of you, mm. and we we amount to 
a sort of strange, jumbly hybrid of what we think we might be and what other people think we are and how we are defined by the class system or our job or the way we dress or the way we, the colour of our skin and so on and so forth. And it shouldn't work. It, there's, a, there's a peculiar coherence or cohesion that occurs that makes it work, mm. the embodied self, but it's, it's a risk and it's a scam. It, it, it's, a, it's a falsehood. So what I wanted to just show is what, happened when there is a, what happens when there is a crack in that. So Shai's therapist is right when she says, come on, you know, don't watch horror movies, don't smoke weed, take more exercise. She's correct, but she's also woefully mild. She may be speaking a different language. She may have come from an alien planet mm. for how incorrect she is about how that's actually going to help Shy. And that's what I wanted to do is not judge either of those. I, w I wanted to just set him up. He's, he's in, he's, as I said, he's in, he's in the night and the night is made up of other people's thoughts about him. And what does that leave him to say about himself? Very, very little. Mm. And that's sort of amounts to a, a literary theory of consciousness for me. Mm because it means that other ghosts can slip into him. Um, tiny little accidents of consciousness can occur. So he is haunted by someone he's never met, never even thought about, that lived in the room 30 years before him. He might equally be haunted by his great-great-grandson. That time, human time and deep time are, are woven together in a way that he is completely unaware of, but ends up saving him. Yeah. And that's just a tiny mystical accident of the night. Um, which I believe, uh, that will be my, my supposition, is that that happens to us all, all day, every day. Um, the, the sort of high-stakes nature of having a mind, the sheer strangeness of it, um, is, is, is seals our fate, you know, as well as, our, as, well as the, the miraculous capabilities of community or care or love. Or We have to hear you read a bit, uh, Max, because um, I think... Uh, a lot of the things that we're going to uh, get into a bit later is about s hearing you and perhaps also I have asked to get to see the text that you're going to read because of get how your technique, how your method, how, you, how oh, you're doing yes. this. Oh, yes. Here we are. So I have, I have given Max an assignment. He's, he's <laughs> is about to read three... Pages I have uh, given to him. And I'm very polite English yes, author who does what I'm polite. told. <laughs> Shall I read from here? Are, yes. we, are we happy? Can everyone see? He thinks of the time in year eight when he was walking home from school across the wreck and he had his head down, scuffing the grass, talking to himself, unselfconscious, interviewing himself about why he'd like to play the part of Joseph in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And two older girls chain-smoking sixth formers, fully grown women, were suddenly next to him, ripping the piss, slumped along, impersonating his walk, his daydream. I really feel the tell the Billy No mates. I can't really imagine loving my coat of many colours. He plods along, heavy-footed, alert. Well, Shy, if things are closing in, mate, go to one of your cheery thoughts, yeah? He imagines arriving in a club and heading to the booth. White labels in his bag, crowd parting to let him through, fist bumps, huge blunts, free drinks. Yes, boss, big up, respect. Amanda, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Shy. Uh, I was in a mood. Ian was lecturing me about my behaviour. And I saw his hand. I was cutting up a carrot. And before I know it, the knife is 
stood upright in his little finger and everyone's angry with me, God knows why. <laughs> Amanda, you shouldn't joke. Shy. Well, me and him ended up, ended up bonding over it a bit, actually. He didn't press charges. He can be all right. Anyway, I only chipped the bone. He's got chubby fingers. <laughs> the lower garden is brambly and wild. They clear it sometimes and it grows right back. It grows back fast. Trouble, little plants growing in the English scrub, but you're worth saving, aren't you? Put your hand on your heart, right? And tell me that you don't feel energised, yeah? And pleasingly tired and a little bit educated, yeah? Out here in the fresh air. He talks to himself while he worked in the garden because they weren't allowed headphones. He chatted crap and mumble-wrapped. Find me to buy weed, find weed, buy me to mind weed all the time. Never mind, leave me behind weed. Yanking up great lengths of tangled roots, stubborn leaves and little white umbrellas. Talking to himself since he was a kid. First sign of madness, said his nan. Nettles, dandelion, bugloss, brambles. Steve is teaching them as they hack away. Morning glory, and they all laugh. Shy versus goosegrass, Dillinger remix, plantain, doc, toxic chop, 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 chop. Witness how bindweed Babylon falls, motherfucker! Shy screamed as he grabbed and he pulled, and the others all laughed with him. Last view of the house from the bottom hedge. The ghost of Lady Nash, or whatever. Bon voyage, shy. Later, wankers. Oh, it's so it's so interesting and great hearing you read, um, and I think it's um, important because we are not only reading your novels as readers. We're not only reading; we are also performing the novels in a mm, way. Mm. Uh, by which, I mean, uh, we have to be active readers mm. in finding out who is talking, what voice or situation or theme or the different fonts are representing. Mm. Mm. And in addition, we're also looking as readers. Pages are a form of, your pages are a form of visual mm. art. So you have mm. shown the, the mm. wall of uh, questions mm. that uh, you showed us. Uh, and And I... I wonder what these kind of... And there's a kind of a poetry reading here uh, also. Mm, mm. So all these kind of different art forms mm. that seems to influence your work. Mm. Um, this book is really, really bad in an e-book edition, I can tell you, because I, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I had it in an e-book <laughs> on my iPad and yeah. it didn't work. So it's also a kind of a defense for the mm. physical yes. book. Uh, the physical book on the page. Mm. So, how 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 do you mind? Does your mind mm. work? Mm. What, what do you think about uh, being inspired by so many different kinds of art forms? Well, there's two. There's there's more than two. There's lots to say. Um, yes. <laughs> one of the reasons. Um, one of the reasons I do, I leave, you know they're like. They're like exploded screenplays and I leave dialogue unassigned and I want you to think about who is speaking is because I genuinely think that's why I like literature as much as I do. I'm being asked a question. If the, if the answer to that question is built into the text itself, I, 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 it's like there's no party. Mm. Um, the relationship between image and text, I want 
to work out what a painting means for myself. I don't go straight to the wall text and see what the curator of the gallery has told me that what that painting means. If I go straight to the wall text, there's a sort of terrible swooshing, which is the absence of any energy for me between the work, because ambivalence is gone, and ambivalence is and ambiguity are the principal weapons of literature for me. So, like the first page of the book, I have it say up and Adam shy which someone pointed out is a quote from Joyce, but I didn't know this. That's um, what happens when you read too much Joyce when you're, when you're a stoned teenager. Uh, um, but I want you to read that book on page. Fine, that's a, someone telling him to get out of bed, but it could be his teacher telling him to get out of bed in a compassionate way, up and at him shy. Mm. It could be his stepdad saying, up and at him shy, get out of bed. It, it could be the ghost in the house saying, up and at him shy, time to kill yourself. Mm. It, could, it could be his own inner monologue saying, today's the day, up and at him, hit the, hit the target, do the thing. And I want you to think all the way through the book that that, lang- that, 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 phrase is changing in who I've assigned it to, which, which character is speaking, which actor has that role. And no, none of them are correct or incorrect. The interpretive doorway must be open to different corridors at all times. Like, is the crow in my first book a metaphor for grief? Yes. Is he also a joke? Yes. Is he also a very carefully calibrated response to the work of Ted Hughes? Yes. Yeah. All these things, all at once, both, how to be both. And I want that bothness, that, that muchness to be infectious. And I don't think necessarily that the social realist model of literature inherited from the 19th century that does a lot of expositional back work and says the character you're about to meet is Ian. Mm. Ian went to Oxford University between the ages of 1989. He studied such and such. He's mildly racist. He likes cornflakes. He runs four miles a day. All Again, this whooshing, it's gone from me. That I can't make Ian in my own... I can't invent Ian for myself. And in the invention on the reader's part or crediting the reader as a hugely sophisticated person who's watched lots of TV, read loads of books, is different to me. The difference to me is the thing. Mm. I don't want to bring them into my own way of thinking about a person by describing... So, so that's the offering. But and as regards the hybridity, I think that I borrow some of the attention of poetry in the line, as well as some, as well as some of the formal strategies of the screenplay, or the essay sometimes, or, the, or children's books, in order to create this collage knowing that it's not the element. So if you imagine one of those beautiful Joseph Cornell collages, it's not that he puts a bird and a ladder. It's that in the space between the bird and the ladder, your knowledge of birds and ladders mm. is invited into play. So it's the, it's, it's, it's the hinge of the metaphor. It's, it's what John Berger would describe as that um, flooding of the... the, the it, it, John Berger is so beautiful about what happens when you look at a series of images on a wall a photographic sequence, because in between those is, is, is life, is, is the, the, the raid on the inarticulate that, that is filled by your politics or your psychosexual makeup or, or, the, or the other photography you've seen or what you did that day. So I want a, I want a kind of literature that is still open um, and, but, co- and collaborative. But uh, what kind of reader? You trust the reader. It, it seems for me that you trust, trust the reader. Well, mm. you don't need to take the reader by the hand and uh, lead her t- towards whatever information mm. this reader perhaps needs because to understand this mm. uh, part of the novel... Well, or don't you know when you're not being trusted by a writer? Or don't you know when experimentation is, is in order, I- I- exists 
almost at the expense of the reader and is, is, is purely to delight or self-congratulate the, the cleverness of the author. Mm. You've been excluded there. Yeah. It's an exercise, an, 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 an elitist exercise. In and that's a balance there. That's a really, really huge risk you're taking. But it's, 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 it's the risk that the musician takes in the room. Uh, when to bring back? When to stop? When to, when to when to when to when to be aware that you're tethered? When to when to? It's it's the play of of a live performance, and so I, I want that the live performance energy in the text, um, and I feel it when I'm writing. I feel like suddenly, hang on a minute, I'm just I'm borrowing pre-existing or or pre-formulated ways of describing a thing in order to get from A to B, and it's laborious, and therefore I think it's dull, mm. and therefore what I've done is start to assume my reader is an idiot who needs my help here. And what I've learned is the readers are, are, are the exact opposite. And I think I was spoilt because I learned that when Grief is a Thing with Feathers was published, I, I was just told it was a weird, small thing that would have very few readers and couldn't be translated because it was so peculiar. Mm. And then, you know, fast forward a few years and I'm sitting in a Hungarian cafe listening to a 75-year-old Hungarian woman say how she is one of the boys and that her love of... Uh, of you know peasant poetry from the 1640s was mm. equivalent to and of course like you cannot underestimate that and i think if literature or writers do underestimate that then they they're then they're in the wrong line of work because it is the most ambitious it's the it, it's it's i i think it's a profoundly radical form especially in its bodily because if especially now with the screens because if you are going to sit for 12 hours or however long the average book takes to read mm. in your body and feel sick or revolted or deeply ashamed or the tug of, of emotion pour through you, then what an art, what an art form, mm. you know, what an extraordinary art form. So I, they, 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 even though my books tend to take on quite dark subject matter, they, I think they are all rejoicing in that encounter. And then the more work I've done in the theatre, the more I've thought about how radical that encounter is you as a writer you are in an empty room with an audience and and total silence and you and and you can hear a pin drop and you can do anything and you have at your disposal sound lighting scenery mm. um smoke mirrors you know all the things and so the decisions you make do i put him in a dark forest witnessing a shining light is you know is it a single act play is it is it borrowing from is it is it a highly calibrated remix of what's come before or is it new etc etc I think if you do those decisions marvelling at the potential range and, and elasticity and ambition of your reader, you're mm. going to have a lot more fun. I, I think of my reader as, as, as a sort of bubbling mass of hugely eccentric and interesting and ambitious people. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not one of them, off you fuck. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think it, that also comes from my love of children's literature. You know, really good children's books assume that their reader is a time-traveling, shape-shifting marvel, mm. able to able to traverse huge universes and linguistic complexities, and doesn't need to be whacked around the head with a moral. Mm. And I think one of the unfortunate things about the, the adult, so-called adult literature, is that it unfortunately does assume that sometimes. But do you feel the the risk of getting whimsical? Do you feel the risk of Being writing something that mm, comes out as uh, nonsense, uh, <laughs> or uh, because I don't know, Mattis, you I, tell me. I, yeah. Well, I had to when when you went through the drum and bass people, I I yeah. stopped and I had to go to Spotify yeah, and try yeah, to yeah, find yeah, a lot yeah, of them. Yeah. Uh, and 
I, I don't mind because I'm, I'm, I, 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 once I was a student, I like mm. being a student. I don't mm. mind mm. going back and mm. looking at it. But more importantly, I think that it's two things that I don't, I don't care if I don't get it exactly. first. Exactly, yeah. Because I can move on. Mm. And one of the reasons I can move on is that the emotional power that's in the foundations yes. of all your work, really, of all your novels, uh, is so strong that it's my anchor through to yeah. through things I don't really get, but I trust that I will get it. Get it. I trust yeah. that I will move along. It, it makes me move along as well. That's this, beautiful. I'm yeah. really delighted to hear that, and I'm going to borrow that. Good, because, it, it, <laughs> because if there is an emotional propulsion, and it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's cute or pretty or or, or sentimental or nice. It, it, the emotional propulsion might be pure horror, abject unease, whatever. It, there is when you are in the marshy ground, you are getting wet socks in my books. You are not sure what the hell is going on. There is there is a path. There mm. is a plank of wood that that, that that will be there after a few more steps, and that's important to me. I, I think that. I suppose it's what I mean about ambivalence. So, you know, look, those wonderful, the, the Border Trilogy by Cormac McCarthy, I remember my brother saying to me, are you translating all the Spanish? You know, when he's in those books, there's these great long sections where he's sort of sitting out, eating refried beans with Mexican ranch hands, mm. and they're speaking in, in Spanish for long sections. Mm. And no, I didn't. <laughs> because the emotional propulsion of the book was taking me forward. I loved those boys. I loved that setting. I, I, I could take the occasional word and understand that they were talking about the cosmos. Mm. Or horses. Um, same thing, of course. <laughs> um, so I think if, if what you've got to do is, A, not go too far up your own arse and, 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 and like the sound of your own voice as a writer so much that it's all hmm. um, sort of highly, highly nuanced rabbit holes of my own interests and cleverness, because then I've excluded the reader, but also not resist the temptation to trust that the reader will, will come with you. Hmm. So long as the, the, that's why I'm so fixated on structure. Because I think if the structure, if the architecture of the book is strong, the nocturne or the triptych or the overheard village voice in Lanny, the, the, it, that's why I can't really start writing until I have that structural solidity because that's what I know will, will tell me when, I'm, when I've gone too far outside, you know, when I've been mm. wang on outside of it because it is my tug. It's my, it's my forward movement. But I mean, the, a different writer, you've written about grief. Uh, you've written about uh, uh, a man and two boys losing the, uh, his wife and their mother. You've written about Lanny, who is a, a brilliant, special boy going missing in, a, in the countryside. And now you write about a boy on his way to take his own life. These are emotional, <laughs> strong stories. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, a different kind of writer uh, would maybe take advantage of that kind of the mm. sentimentality that's some that you could make mm. it into mm. something sentimental of that. And I was just wondering if you are you going into this these stories, these strong emotional stories uh, first, or are, are the structure, the the mm. ideas around it uh, coming, the way you cut it up, the way you mm. juxtaposition mm. everything, mm. the method. Uh, no, I don't think first. so. That's how I write, and that, and, that, and 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 it won't always be that way. But it is, it has been how I write. I, I think I want to be moved. I mean, I, I I am interested in why the world, why why grief, for example, is 
such a rewarding long-term project why 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 that pain is also so deeply joyful and and interesting when examined i'm interested in gossip and bigotry uh, but also deep deep family tenderness and stuff so i, I suppose my what the things i'm interested in this life need a, and i'm waiting for the form and those interests to collide in a way that feels like a good book mm. feels like a thing i can write well i mean i wrote a book last year and put it in the bin because i would say that balance was off it was called The Funeral Train, and it was a book about the death. It was based on the Bobby Kennedy funeral train. You know, there's extraordinary photos of people on the tracks looking at the train going through America. And I rewrote every single one of those photographs and translated it to contemporary Britain where a politician had been shot. And uh, my agent said, it's just too, it's just too bleak. It's, too, it's, it's in it is a deep, deep um, hurt that will infect your reader and you'll have to go and talk about it with people and you'll, you know, you'll upset yourself and everybody all the time. It's horrible. <laughs> um, and she was right. But I think what happened was that the concept of it, the conceptual device of describing those photographs and putting the meaning in it had, 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 had wobbled off the axis of the momentum that you're describing. Hmm. The momentum wasn't there. And I think perhaps because there wasn't enough love in it. And I do believe books require, even if they're horrible books about horrible people, they require love on the reader's part with the, the, the depth and, quant and quality of your engagement with the subject matter. Needs to be deeply, deeply loving enterprise. On sentimentality, the accusation has been levelled at shy that it is sentimental in, in mm. its ending. And if I may answer my critics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you may. <laughs> They're fucking idiots. <laughs> They're right-wing twats, bruv. Um, I'm very interested in it and I'm very alarmed by it because what happens without... Uh, there's no it's a spoiler right but what happens at the end of shy is that he does a very destructive thing and the people the employees of the of the school are faced with a decision what to do when they see him doing that destructive thing and what they do is hold him physically hold him and i don't think that is sentimental i think it's a very precisely expertly deployed professional decision mm. to know that a person a violent l criminal unbalanced person in that moment should be held should be cared for not scolded arrested shipped off and that comes not not like it comes a little bit from the work i've done in prisons and my interest in in rehabilitation and care but it also comes from a deep unease with the way we talk about particularly boys and men and the the cults the, the cults plural of masculinity that have been so pervasive over over the history of our culture the last hundreds thousands of years ideas of strength virility and hand in hand with capitalist ideas of progress growth mm. um power uh, shoring up one's power against against the either the invading other uh, in racial terms or or the weakness of the failed product you know uh, or 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 um misogynist ideas and anti-intellectualism and misogyny hand in hand against this i think they've got us where they've mm. got us into a world that is utterly and irrevocably broken in that regard um so i think compassion is is the least we need mm. it's the very beginning of what we need we need to completely rebuild our ideas of what human beings should be to one another in our language and in our and with our bodies, and, and as nation states and as individuals, you know, in the domestic sphere and in the, and, and in the, in the, the terrible, mind-bogglingly appalling global theatre of conflict, um, 
we need the idea that that peace is uh, is a sort of hippie affectation, a weak choice when when there's a there's a firmer. firmer where has that got us? It's got us terrible injustice and and piles of bodies everywhere you look. So and this this is what you see now. This, yeah, this is this is how see. I see it. Mm. Um, and so I don't just mean to talk about you know Andrew Tate or the dangers of YouTube videos in which it's it, it, people take delight in in mocking homosexuals or trans kids or whatever because that is obviously an aberrant and and deeply toxic. I mean the whole thing. Mm. I mean how we educate one another. How I. I, I I, I'm like Simone Weil. Like I, I'm not like her. I wish I was. But <laughs> I, I, I borrow from Simone Weil the sense that you are, we are on the wrong path if we have taken peace out of the equation. If we've taken education, wisdom, a responsible press, a responsible judiciary, politicians who are obliged because of the sacred pact between states and their leaders to tell the truth. If we've taken that out and we've just got a free for all of bribery, corruption, lying, you know then we are in real trouble and that trouble doesn't manifest itself on on the on the sheen of the exterior it manifests itself in the body politic of our children so like the uk for example i said i'd slag off the uk yes, i'm yes. gonna do it <laughs> you take 53 million quid out of the social care budget and close all the libraries and close all the youth clubs what you have is a, is a lost generation I don't know if anyone saw the Mercury Music Prize when the Ezra Collective, fantastic British jazz band, the Ezra Collective won the prize recently and he delivered this terrific speech. He just said, it's no accident that we, ha that we, we didn't just stumble across saxophones and trombones on the street. We were given these instruments at youth club mm. and they were funded youth clubs where very, very hardworking, badly paid people cared for us and mentored us and gave us their expertise and showed us that we could be musicians if we wanted because the messaging we were getting elsewhere was that we were going to be Council of State rats, mm. criminals, hoodies, hoodies, hoodlums, you know, black youths. And they said, no, you can be musicians. You can take over the world. You can, you can win prizes and take over the world and, and, and have love. And so what that's happened in the last 13 years in the UK is a steady and ideologically determined um, attack, a, a dismantling, a, a, a corrosion of upward social mobility. And it, it's in our, it, it, this is our line of work, right? So we have to see, is there a connection? There mm. is a 100% unarguable exact connection between literacy and social mobility. Mm. There's a map in the UK that, that the charity I work with used <laughs> where you can see in granular detail what happens when literacy rates are low. Joblessness, addiction, domestic abuse... Um, at, you know, no access to tertiary education. You, no, there is no upward social mobility, and that's deliberate. It's not an accident. That's that's what they've done, and that that's the problem with. Well, it's the problem with the right, but it's also one of the problems with with capitalist society. And I, and and so I feel like the book is if if the book is sentimental, and I've got to I've got to accept that there is because sentimentality by definition is an excess of tenderness. So I don't buy that. There's no such thing as an excess of tenderness. Mm. Oh, we've been too kind. <laughs> It's just bollocks. <laughs> But what I do buy that there is a sentimentality in it, which is in the way I write about those teachers. I am deeply, deeply romant smitten, romantically clouded, uh, overly tender towards these people, mm. because I think in the in this, it's an extraordinary work, extraordinary work, day in day out to go into a place like that where you're not being paid very much and the funding's been cut so they're going to close the school anyway and every day kids are going, fuck you! Mm. 
or spitting on you or fighting or trying to kill each other or trying to kill themselves and to believe that that work is worth doing mm-hmm. and that not not just to fix to fix to get them to a place but because on their own merits they're worth care outside of the scale of fixed or unfixed or valuable to a society or not valuable to a society or expensive to a society or beneficial to a society outside any growth you know the costing of human souls that that um that the merchandise society forces us to do outside of any of that human being to human being to say i'm here to listen to you mm. i will listen to you and i'll come back tomorrow even if you've told me to get fucked today and listen to you again extraordinary i think it's be- i think it's one of the best things we've ever done mm. i think that 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 pedagogical care combined with therapeutic intent is across different civilizations in history, one of our most extraordinary achievements. And the fact that it very often is what literature concerns itself with cannot be an accident. Mm. It's because that's what, that's what the miracle of consciousness met with language is. It's how do I communicate to you? Um, so, yeah, deeply sentimental old, old, um, <laughs> old left-wing hippie. <laughs> oh. The right-wing newspapers always just call me a hippie or a uh, weird... Uh, and I sort of have to accept that maybe they're right. But there's a hardness to it as well. Like I, I'm very interested. I read a book by a French psychoanalyst this year about gentleness. Uh, very, very similar to Simone Weil in some in some ways. But um, and in fact, the work. While I'm I, every every conversation I have in this city, I have to talk about my favourite writer, who is um, Tahir Vassos. You're great. You you all have to study him at school and think he's boring, but I think he's the most radical dude ever lived. <laughs> And uh, there is something there. There is, there is something in the careful observation of, of human beings in, in their relationship to nature um, that, it, that feels to me um, miraculous, but that also gentleness isn't the weaker choice. It isn't, um, it isn't a less useful tool that, in fact, gentleness might be um, strength, deep, mm. deep, that, 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 that there is a sort of unbelievable force uh, in, in Vile's formulation that there is a force at work in, in the decision to use gentleness when you could use violence that is potentially world-changing. It's like the great Louise Gluck quote about war. What if war is just men um, dressing up because they're too afraid to talk about their emotions? Um, <laughs> and so I think that that is, that is a valid and, and sentimental definition of, of why I want to write. Um, we're soon finished. Um, I just want to ask you something in the end here, because I heard in an interview uh, that you once had a live reading of Grief is the thing with feathers and that you afterwards felt devastated, um, as if I believe you said something like you felt you had taken advantage of your father's memory, making real grief, real, real death into some sort of shiny object of art. Um, where did I where did you I said that in a podcast <laughs> yeah, that's true but it's, true. it's uh, I, I'm not sure I'm not so interested in what you uh, said about grief but I'm interested mm. if you felt something of that kind of because it's a question of entitlement mm. it, it's a question mm. of ownership mm. uh, and it's not uh, grief was part of you you, uh, you felt that grief uh, it, 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 it was your grief you had the right to write about it but confronted with shy which is a totally different kind of person. He's, he's really, really d- in despair. He's, he's so different from you as a writer. Did you feel mm. any kind of... 
you, you, that you were trespassing, mm. Uh, mm. that you were going over the line, describing him? Uh, or mm. was the whole idea respecting those lines? That, that is a beautiful question. Uh, and I think I need to probably write my next book to fully answer it. What I feel is that the I am that I am getting a little bit better, maybe, through the work I do with other people, not necessarily on my own, but the collaborations I do with actors or musicians or theatre makers. I'm getting a little bit better about the attention to that trespassing whether it's trespassing on my own feelings or the memory of a dead person or whether it's a sort of acceptance that I am haunted and fraudulent, that I am going to borrow and steal and look at you all and write a scene set in a basement in Oslo next week. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be re, re, um, unapologetic in my, in my um, raid on, on the word hoard all the time. I need, mm. I need to be. Um, but that I'm going to suffer from and potentially even revel in, in a, maybe in a self-pitying way, in the deep kind of chronic unease that results from that mm. in myself. So I can reconcile it probably by working hard. So with Shy, I really worked hard and I wrote the kind of book that I think would be, I didn't base it on anyone, I haven't exploited anybody, I've listened more than I've talked, I've. it's probably more indebted to my... Welsh grandmother or my depressed mum or than it is to any particular teenage boy and therefore I think it might actually have some impact for a teenage boy you know people have spoken to me that it, it, it reanimates the teenage boy they lost or were mm. in a way that I don't think it could have done if I'd sat down with a teenage boy and tried to write about them I think I have to borrow from everybody to create these almost monstrous emotional hybrids these um these uh, they're like um the, the no 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 that you know the japanese spirit that haunts you at night that is all your ancestors queued up and that's what i think novelists risk is that they are they they, they lie awake at 3 a.m and all their ancestors are saying you you sick mm. fuck congratulations <laughs> um and i and that that risk i think is is part of my practice because i want to i want to take it seriously but also i think i want to keep on assessing the emotional or political toolkit for each piece of work to assess where i am with that fine balance mm. you know you can't use the same tools to to, to to write a new story and so i think what i would do is is ask and also can i take um i think my next book won't be uh a book that people will queue up and say the kind of emotionally charged things they say to me about grief mm. or shy. I maybe need a break from it because I feel like I've, I've, I'm slightly saturated with everyone's pain, which is an honour. I mean, I'm, I'm honoured and humbled to be so to be privy to such stories, but I think it's potentially also killing me. <laughs> and so I think I need some distance, and I want to try and make a different type of art. But I, but I, um, but I think the reconciliation is the same. Is is who is what is being exploited? What is being used? How can I? Who am I? Who am I standing naked on a stage and saying I mean this too? And is it ultimately to myself? Mm. Because the the current environment of writers being cancelled for saying the wrong thing or the accusations of cultural appropriation or whatever that really that that the, the the that really should be happening and should have always been happening with every writer for every book forever mm. are you using someone else's story for the right reasons are you careful and attentive when you're borrowing something that you don't know anything about or are you trying to inflict little wounds which is valid are you trying to hurt or shock these are all valid strategies so i think all i've 
all I've learned from this one particularly is what are my strategies? What are they trying to achieve? And can I be undistracted in that in that mission by Amazon or or, or reputation or prizes and all that all the sort of clutter and bump of a writer's life? Can I have that attention? You know, like Agnes Martin alone in her studio in Texas, standing five foot back and thinking that's not good enough. Mm. And and we would look at that and be like, well, that's exactly the same as the one next to it. They're all grids of grey lines on a pink background, but she knows that that isn't good enough. That one, and I want to keep on working that hard. And I, yeah. We're looking forward to that, Max. And thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you so You're much. You're such a good interview. It's marvelous <laughs> to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.